There are those who say I respond to cold as others do to a bad odor, and I am the last to deny the impression. What I will do is to relate the most horrible circumstances I have ever encountered, and leave it to you to judge whether or not this forms a suitable explanation of my peculiarity. Just like how filmmakers leave it to us to form suitable explanations for the peculiarities they bring to adapting Lovecraft, allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide through the world of cinematic Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be reviewing 2006's Cool Air, written by Cynthia Kiernan, Kiernan, sorry, and directed by cyborg subgenre pioneer Albert Pion, which was something that I didn't know about until I read his uh, IMDb profile, which I'm pretty sure was written by him. Um, yeah, I read it too, it's possibly, and then you didn't realize that there's actually a book about his films, which blew your mind. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> one of one of the more established, quote-unquote, indie directors we've covered, because he directed, uh, most famously, not just the film Cyborg, but uh, the 1990s version of uh, Captain America. <laughs> yep, yep, and everything also from Alien from L.A., mm-hmm. um, Kickboxer 2, The Road Back, Dollman... <laughs> Um, uh, Brain Smasher, uh, Kickboxer 4, The Aggressor, of course, <laughs> Hong Kong 97, uh, Nemesis 2, and Nemesis. Actually, see, you know what, he, that's why he's the cyborg subgenre, because he did Cyborg and he did the Nemesis series, which are pretty fun, like, well, like I said, I like shit, but still. Mm-hmm. But, but we'll get into the film itself, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read part of the review that the guy and you, you he i think he's on the same line as us actually so oh really okay oh yeah 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 it's i won't say yet because it'll be a surprise but yep okay if, but if you listen to us you might know what the answer is already yeah but <laughs> before we get into that we do have some little bit of housekeeping um we've we've talked a lot on this podcast about the existential horrors of of, of lovecraft's work and we've dabbled a little bit in discussions of the racist i can't even say racist content hp lovecraft was a racist and how that stuff sort of manifests in the story and how filmmakers choose to either have that or unintentionally accent that but but that that stuff exists within lovecraft and as you may have seen if you follow us on facebook Black Lives Matter. That is something that James and I firmly believe in. We are, we support the protesters. We mm-hmm. support our, you know, brothers and sisters of, of, of color who have for far too long in this country been subjugated, been oppressed, and been treated differently because of who they are, and, and done so in a insidious, legal, systemic sort of way. It's shitty, and there's been a lot of shit going on in the in the world uh, these days, and I don't mean in the sense, uh, not in a both sides kind of sense. Right. Peaceful protesters are being beaten by police. People are being arrested. It's the authority and the system which is a problem. And yet, here we are, two white guys reviewing films written by a white guy who was an abject racist. Racist, uh, misogynist, uh, just anything bad you could think about somebody... Mm-hmm. He probably, he most probably was. Yes. I, I've got an article called up here that I will link to on the Facebook page from uh, MediaDiversified.org. Um, and it's from a, a few years ago. I think it's actually from about maybe five years ago. Uh, yeah. And it's called The N-Word Through the Ages, The Madness of H.P. Lovecraft. And I just kind of sought something out that I could kind of use <laughs> as a uh, something that was typified his behavior so I could have something to talk about but I have to say reading through this I was even more horrified by some of the things I that I didn't even know about him um yeah I mean the the fact the fact that he he has a a a poem that he wrote in 1912 called on the creation of n-words I'm I'm not going to say and also um even down to the fact that Lovecraft was, uh, we make jokes about people who are like, oh, you know, Hitler had some good ideas. Lovecraft was a guy that thought Hitler had some good ideas, and it was just a little bit too militaristic in those executions. Yeah, and that and that's the scary part, like, because, you know, you got to realize when Lovecraft was around, that's when the Third Reich was building up. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people might not even think that. So to think that, you know, this guy was writing these stories already that had this racial 
you know, throughout every story to something, or and then his letters, but then to even think, oh yeah, I, I like that Hitler guy. It's like, mm-hmm. what? Like, but then again, what's sad is, you know, Hitler gave an award to Gerald Ford, <laughs> and and Gerald Ford was happy about it. Mm-hmm. Like, so you you got to think, like, sadly, like this that time, like I don't, I mean, again, it's kind of like what we're going through now. Like, you don't like, don't you see the writing on the wall? It's it's there, but yeah. yet. Like, oh no, no, he's not that bad. Well, he can't be that bad. Like, no, he is. People, and Lovecraft was that bad. You yeah, know? absolutely. And and people will even to this day defend him by saying, well, he was just a product of his time, or they'll say stuff like, well, look, he 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 couldn't have been anti-Semitic. He married a, a Jewish woman, even though, as this article details, part of their divorce was because of his rabid anti-Semitism in thinking that Hitler had some good ideas. Right, so she ran away because, like, wait a second, he's not the man I thought he was. Yeah, and, and I say this not because James and I are saying we have answers or we've come to conclusions, because I have to admit, and I admitted this to James, I admitted this to my mm-hmm. wife after I read this thing, like, I struggle with, like, should we even just stop doing this podcast and stop being part of... of, of I don't want to say stop being part of the conversation, but to stop celebrating the works of this guy who was a very, ah, here I go, I was about to say troublesome, who was a racist individual. I know, it's hard to get out of, because like you, it's the same mindset where I thought, okay, well, he's problematic, he's mm-hmm. troublesome, like, but it's like, no, like, we, we it's like, even, even people like us that, are, like, are, you know, we're trying to be meaningful and, like, care about the world we would make those excuses it's like we can't you can't make those excuses about someone that's is it admitted racist like mm-hmm. like he, he wrote it in letters to like almost like every friend of his like all these correspondence yeah. in this article i'm like blown away that he was just so like it, it wasn't like the you know um the idea of like oh well you know people that are racist but they keep it to themselves mm-hmm. that's terrible that's terrible too but it seemed like lovecraft just let it out to the world, and yet people still try to make excuses, which is like it, like confusing to me. Like I don't understand that. I try to extend grace to some people and say, when your worldview, your truth, your narrative is challenged, your reaction is to push back. But right, you can't, you can't just say this guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a paragraph from this article. Yeah, and I and I, I don't want to say I dare anyone to defend it, but just this was something that horrified me. So. During a visit to Chinatown in 1922, Lovecraft mm. declared it a, quote, filthy dump filled with subhuman swine, a bastard mess of stewing mongrel flesh without intellect, repellent to the eye, nose, and imagination. He goes on to wish for a, quote, kindly gust of cyanogen, which is cyanide, yeah. that might asphyxiate the whole gigantic abortion, end the misery, and clean out the place. There's no sugarcoating it. There's no, oh, he might mean... Some you know something else like it's not like uh you know Mark Twain writing something satirical, or you know you know you know what I mean it's not mm-hmm. it, it's straight up I hate these people because they're not me mm-hmm. so I wish they, so I wish I could kill them all. That's oh, oh, oh okay yeah that's you're you're okay that's it that's, that's there's no there's no black it's black and white there's no gray area in this case yeah and and I I, I read this and I kind of reflect because I've been publicly supporting protests I've been. Donating to the bail fund, the the bail funds mm-hmm. that are sort of like bailing protesters out of jail. I've been campaigning. I've been doing all this sort of stuff, and yet I'm, I'm. But I'm thinking. But at the end of the day, I'm still coming home, reading this stuff, making this podcast. And I thought, like, is our voice needed right now, or should we just kind of stop and disappear? And I I can't say I came to any clear conclusions because, as a writer, at least in terms of the genre, Lovecraft has been. He, he was very talented. He's been hugely influential. And a lot of good stuff has come out of it. And on a very small level, a conversation, you know, that we just had as of this recording, that we just had with two filmmakers from the UK who made a short horror film based on From Beyond. Right. There are friendships forming. There are communities building. There are healthy things coming from this guy who at the core of himself was unhealthy. And I, I, I don't know, because I, I can say... H.P. Lovecraft was a racist, and I like a lot of his work. And, and, I, and I think, 
I think ultimately knowing it and saying it and like, you know, like we're doing right now and at the same time not not worrying about if people will like hate us or mm-hmm. yeah, like, like say, well, why bring that up? Yeah, we don't bring it up every episode because if we're doing something Lovecraftian, there's mm-hmm. nothing to go by. But if we're doing a Lovecraft adaptation and even if the films themselves, and I'll be honest, except for like we, you had mentioned like briefly in that conversation um, with Gavin Thomas, um, that Dagon itself, even though it's made, you know, it, it had problematic stuff with um, people of a different nationality, race, or whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. and they were the bad people. Yeah. Like, and and that's something that still goes on, like, in film today. Like, I mean, hell, all the shit that's going on in the horror world with, like, Sinistate and, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, like, Bone Tomahawk and, like, all those films that <sighs> are very problematic. Mm-hmm. That's, but, you know, sadly, then people will say, well, you know, they're just making films. You Like, what about all those films you like from the 80s that are, you know, like the canon films that are very, when you look at them now, they're very right-wing. Mm-hmm. Like anything, you know, like like Invasion USA. Like Chuck Norris is the hero. Yeah. Like killing all these Russians. But ultimately, like, it's, 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 it's that militaristic approach. Or it's- look at, like, you know, look at Rambo. Look at Hell all this crap that's going on in the world, like it made me look at Robocop a different way. It made me look at dirty Harry a different way. Mm -hmm. Like films that I truly love, but you know, something like total recall, like a lot of these films, like if you look at it from a different point of view, yeah, it's probably scary to someone else that goes, Oh wait, they're really pushing this agenda of like the corporation taking over and putting it up a police state. Mm hmm. And what are we going through right now? It's almost like it's you know what I mean. It's scary. So, so, for, so for anyone to say, oh well, you got to give Lovecraft a pass. Well, then okay. So if that's the case, then you got to give Polanski a pass. You got to give anyone that's problematic and a, a terrible person. But you don't because that's the point. Like if you're a terrible person, you have to say that. So I, I, that's why I think ultimately, I think us doing this podcast is actually helpful. Because of these conversations you and I, you and I have to kind of give it our perspective as, like you said, two white guys mm-hmm. that see like the world, but we'll never know what people you know of color go through. Like I will never know the scare, you know, the no. fear. Mm-hmm. I'll I will never know that. And you know, and I've been hassled by the police in my time, <laughs> but I'm not dead. <laughs> Like you know what I mean, and and like and I I and I, you know you take that for granted sometimes. You go, wow, I don't have to worry when I go out and like just go to the store or something. Like yeah. like I'm more I'm more scared about like someone might you know might rob me. But then it's like other people have to worry about that and also the cops. And it's like I'll never know that. So for anyone to say like Lovecraft, oh was, and like you know we've talked about it before. I think ultimately whoever's using his stories and making something good from it. Mm-hmm. Like, like, okay. To give an example, um, does, cause they're public domain. So technically anyone can make a, so it's not like Lovecraft is still alive making money from this. It's not like, mm-hmm. and that's, and that's kind of where I see like, it's, it's still troublesome for people to maybe do it if they're not familiar with it. But, I think with people like Jordan Peele, Guillermo del Toro, and other filmmakers that are making these films and shows and stuff and loving what they love from it, but they they recognize it. They recognize the problem. They mm-hmm. recognize the racism, but they're making something good from it. And I think ultimately that's what we do with this podcast. We're making something good from it and giving up our perspective, but we're not blindly going, well, you know, he... he He's, he was, you know, like you, you, that, that, that fucking term, product of his time. Okay, so then that gives a pass to everybody that's ever been a racist, you know? Because you, you mentioned the Roman Polanski thing, and that was something that, that, that I was conflicted with as well because yeah. um, I made a personal decision to not right. ever support a Roman Polanski film ever again. Which is great, yeah. But here I am still engaging with this guy and but but but, and 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 it's like and and we've talked about i mean existential horror is a big thing in in lovecraft's universe and so for a lot of 
communities who are not white, that existential horror is every day because you're wondering about or you're worried about yeah. the looks that you're getting. Or like, uh, have you seen, I don't want to get too much into um, specifics of current affairs, but right, there right. was a video, I, I think, from L.A. in which um, some African-Americans who were calling the police on looters were then arrested by the police, the people I, well, that owned the store. The, the, the newscast, the, and, and, and the journalist is actually yelling at the cops to say, yeah. hey, they own it, and they didn't care. Mm-hmm. And it's like, now you realize why they don't always call the police. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, like, you know, I've always had that in my head, but seeing it constantly these last, like, almost two weeks now, it's, it's mind-boggling because, you know, I look back at, like, you know, growing up in the uh, 24-hour news world when it started like mm. in the late eight like the late 80s early 90s when it was just constant and the rodney king case was the big deal like mm-hmm. and then the riots happened and stuff and i remember people like and you know that happened what 91 92 like 92 Na- 92 right? yeah because it, it was just a couple yeah. of years before the oj simpson thing right so i look back at that and I, I think about it like where i saw it as this horrific act no matter what happened i looked at it, it's like what are they doing and then I remember, I remember friends of mine, their parents and stuff. I remember these conversations. They just like threw back, oh well, he was a criminal, mm-hmm. and I, and it, it it stuck with me to this day, and it it, it scares me because I still hear that today. Mm-hmm. Like they always try to find something, yep. and you go, oh so, okay, well so I I robbed a candy bar once from a store, so I guess I should die like you know what i mean like yeah. that mentality like what are you talking about like oh well it's not you but it's him or her and that it i don't know it, again it it hurts to like hear it all the time and see it and it's and we see it you know we're living in it right now we see it every day and that's the horror right now i think of like i can only see what's going to come out from this like you i hope for the best but always expect the worst and What's going to happen? What's going to come from this? You hope there's going to be change, but I mean, being hopeful is great, but at the same time, I'm also truthful and like, I'm also like a realist and it's kind of like this dichotomy of like, oh man, I wish that could happen, but will it? And yeah. And, and you know, it just, it's frustrating. It's, it's truly frustrating to try to believe that we live in this like great world and stuff, but then go we are like little we're nothing and like in the cosmic sense of everything you know well and that's the thing is that we respond or what we find so effective about his stuff is this idea of like oh the the insignificance of our life imagine if like if man or humankind like we are actually nothing imagine uh, put yourself in the shoes of African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans who are constantly being told, not just by media, but by the authority figures meant to protect them, you are less. You are not significant. That cashing, fuck, man, cashing a check could get you killed. Right, yeah. Imagine imagine that horror. And now, another thing that you said that I want to respond to is that idea of, so... I make a decision about supporting or not supporting Roman Polanski. I can't make that decision because Lovecraft is not alive anymore. But at the same time, that means, especially with his work in public domain, creators, writers, directors can do whatever the hell they want with this stuff. And some of the ultimate form of subversion is like, oh, that's what he meant? Here's what we're going to fucking do instead. So we, we have Lovecraft Country, which is going to explore that idea of African Americans literally going through Lovecraft Country with his monsters, and yeah. the we have this idea of we can recapture that, we can editorialize it, we can change the conversation around it. I'm it, it's funny because I know uh, old Looney Tunes cartoons are some of the most offensive things you could possibly imagine. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, and people could say, well, they're a product of their time. If you buy, I believe, current DVD releases, they come with title cards which are prefacing some of these depictions were from their time but they are offensive and they they kind of say like yes it was a product of their time but it was also wrong yeah they they do that with tom and jerry cartoons Mm -hmm. now they do that with the dis like 
I have a bunch of the old Disney tins that had like the war cartoons and mm-hmm. stuff, and and they say that like because it's offensive stuff. Oh yeah, and I'm and and you know and ultimately that's like same thing with something like Disney's Song of the South. Yeah, like not to, not to segue too much, but that movie could be released with like a great documentary about how the bad stuff about it and discuss it to generate to go, look, let's like, hopefully we'll never get to this point again where we're making a film like that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or, or some like, you know, but I mean, then again, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's these warnings because, you know, there's nothing funnier than a Looney Tunes cartoon. But when I see those ones that have something that's like, Oh, okay. What is that? Mm-hmm. Like, what's with that depiction there? Yep. It, it turns my stomach. And like, even as a kid, I'd be like, why does that person look funny? Yeah. Not not realizing what they were going for, and then my dad would explain to me, "Oh, that's that's how they did." This. And I'm like, "Ew!" Like, yeah. I was horrified. Like, even as a kid, and like, even my dad would just tell me, "Yeah, it's it was a it was a different time. They just they just didn't care. They just they looked at people differently." And then realizing that's still going on, and it's like, you know, it's like, what the hell? Like, it should be better. One of the the the, the conclusions I guess I've come to, or one of the small solace as I take from it well not even small but like his stuff is in the public domain he is not he is not personally benefiting off this stuff anymore right. and this right. idea like I said we have the power we have and and I don't mean we as in you and I I mean we're including that but just people have the the power to editorialize it to change it to take what he meant and turn it into something that can that they are going to use for their purposes, which I'm sure would infuriate him, and I find that kind of hilarious. And that makes me happy. People are taking your stories and taking the best out of them mm. and subtracting the worst. Yeah. And that's kind of like that's kind of like why I still like to find these adaptations because ultimately you hope for the cosmic horror part, and you hope you hope to hell that there's none of that racist shit in there. And if people want to say, well, he was a product of his time, fine, keep going and say he was a product of his time and he was wrong. Or Exactly, yes, thank you, that's perfect. Or, and he was a shithead, because he was. He was a very talented shithead who made a lot of effective, great work. And that's, like I said, as I've been struggling with this, it's like, yes... I like a lot of his work, and he is a racist. I didn't want to say but, I didn't want to add the caveat, I didn't want to, it's just like, that. those two things exist at the same time. And, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that may not be satisfying to, to some people, it doesn't entirely feel satisfying to me, um, but if we do have, you know, listeners out there who are, who are people of color, who are non-white, um, James and I want to be allies we want to be supportive we're gonna screw up maybe even that you you know because i I was even thinking like hey um maybe we'll just like you know if there's ever a horror at red hook adaptation we'll just avoid that one but that doesn't seem to go far i I don't know i i have a a long way to go i have a lot to learn and i think that's that's good i mean you know you know what i mean like it we're not close-minded we're not like let's just ignore it it's more like um um, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, I think us doing this, us discussing this, like it, it, it would be a slap in the face of everything we believe in if we just didn't say sh- anything about this, mm-hmm. like anything at all. It would be like, oh, okay. Well, you say you're an ally, but you're not even referencing that part. And like, you know, we've talked about it in other episodes, and we've been horrified, at, horrified by it because it is horrifying. But then, when you sent me that article, it like sickened me even more than I ever could imagine because I knew it mm-hmm. but then when you see it plain as day clear as crystal adamant racist like it's just just such vitriol such hatred for everybody I am eager and excited for Lovecraft Country I am eager and oh, excited yeah. to see how other people can what they can do with this stuff how they can change the spirit how they can change the narrative how they can basically there's an opportunity here which you can't do with someone like a a, a Polanski or someone who is still alive you can change the conversation and you can subvert the spirit of what he was going for and that's what I hope we can continue doing 
Um, and for our part, we'll try and if, if something stinks to us, I, I mean, we're about to review Cool Air. The short story had a very stereotypical Spanish woman as like you know the the basically the the woman who is uh, overseeing the house basically, and like and that's that's what he did, and that's shitty. And I'm glad that that wasn't an element that was carried on through either of these adaptations. No, like yeah, we'll get into chill. It's not it's you could say it is a little bit, but it's not. It, it's luckily. There's other offensive things about these films, but <laughs> yeah, I uh, won't get into that. Other offensive things, which are easy yeah. to easy to laugh off and easy to just kind of discard. Like okay, like, like, like yeah, no what one the hell, no one's losing sleep over this, but people are losing sleep, are losing lives, are losing so much out there because the struggle is very real. And I, I know what you're saying. It's it's horrible to see what's happening, but I also kind of, I, I don't know. This feels different this feels like maybe we actually are on the cusp of something here yeah i mean stuff has been happening at least more so than usual mm -hmm. you know with all like the confederate like statues that were still around being torn down yep. and, mm -hmm. and and even in the uk the statue that got thrown into the river <laughs> yeah so ultimately so little little things like that hopefully in the next you know five to ten years we'll be looking at a different world like a brighter world like a a happy world, and they'll always be racist. They're always going to be like hell. Lovecraft proves that it's always been there. Mm -hmm. Racism does not go away; it stays. And in his case, he 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 flaunted it. He flaunted his racism. Yeah, he didn't he didn't hide it. He didn't like never say anything, and then like wrote a book before he died, and like oh, he was a big racist. It's like it was always there. No, I I, I mean as yeah. we said, the, we, we've we've talked before about off mic and on mic about like separating the art from the artist when it comes to stuff like the horror at red hook the shadow over insmith you can't that because it is right. so ingrained with each other um exactly. so we'll continue kind of going on trying to change the conversation trying to call it the bullshit and hell here's even a, a headline from the new york times just as of a few minutes ago minneapolis city council pledges to dismantle the police department and whatever that means but you know what <laughs> if that means change you know, other cities might take that go, oh, shit, maybe we should do the same. Yeah, so that's a, that was neither uh, neat nor clean uh, nor satisfying, I'm sure, to any of us involved with it. But that's kind of where it stands. And I just felt like this was something that had to be addressed. Because especially with what's going on in the past couple of weeks, if we just proceeded as like, oh, no, everything's fine. And we're not going to we're not going to talk about this like this. This we have this is stuff that has to be talked about that has to be dealt with. Like, like I said earlier, if we ignored it and just went, oh, let's just cover cool air, then what? Then we're 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 as we're as bad as anyone else that's just not saying anything about it. Listen, silence is complacency. Complacency is contributing <sighs> to the problem. So, exactly, um, that's no good. But and you know, maybe I'll uh, hopefully I remember to do this. If anyone out there is also interested in how they can help, I'll I'll try to throw a few links on the Facebook page of places you can donate, uh, causes you can support. Because um, it doesn't seem like these uh, this is going anywhere anytime soon. There's been a few concessions made, and I think that that uh, they uh, certain authority figures are hoping that with concessions made, that'll mean that like oh this is over, let's wind this stuff down. No, no, it's got to keep it's got to keep going. It's it, like I, I look back at other big time protests like um occupy wall street and how mm -hmm. that was supposed to be the change and nothing happened no and it's i'm not blaming the protesters it's just ultimately you protested they said oh we're gonna change stuff oh cool now we're not yeah but um yeah. what i think what uh what governments and and, uh, and police precincts are not um contributing or, or or thinking about right now is um it's a pandemic. No one's fucking going anywhere. There is plenty yeah. of time to protest. And, and it's funny you say that too, because like it's funny because New York City is opening up. Like, well, I'll I'll date this. It's open. It's opening up in its first phase tomorrow yeah. on Monday. And like even my myself with the fears of going back to work and whatnot. And we have a conference call tomorrow. Uh, probably about what date we're going back. Like, I have a feeling that's what it's going to be about. Mm -hmm. And it's that fear of, you know, I have, I mean, hell, I lost an uncle to this, you know, to pandemic. And it's like all this stuff that's going on. And then you have the rights and like the, the protests and the, and just everything else that's like these police brutality. And you're like, 
it's it's you you hope that with all the shit that's going on and it's like the destruction mm-hmm. it's gonna rebuild into something beautiful yeah i kind of hope that and like you know let's 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 just keep but let's keep at it let's keep talking about this let's keep triumphing you know people of color like their creations their art their their stores their this and let's keep denouncing and showing the um the racists out there that their intolerance will fight it with our own intolerance towards them mm-hmm. you know I, I mean yeah and and support art from people who are not like you hell watch watch do mm-hmm. the right thing watch get yeah. out watch horror noir watch attack the block um yes watch i, I mean even the original candy man which has themes of like speaking to that kind of like oh the, yeah there's plenty definitely there's, there's plenty of stuff out and that and i was talking about this um on, on another podcast i was doing the other day the pandemic sucks for many reasons one of which was uh, i was really looking forward to seeing antebellum and i was really looking forward to seeing uh candy man which allegedly still uh, might be coming out because it, it was a september release but i'm um, i'm hoping yeah like and and going back to candy man and let's let like you know really brief talk about that i love candy man to death and think about this. Clive Barker wrote that story, a white man, but it wasn't a black character. Mm. When they when they adapted it, they changed it from mm. London to the United States. Mm-hmm. The I, sh- Chicago, I believe, isn't it? I, I, yeah, the Chicago, the the the, the projects there. Mm-hmm. They changed it, and even I think even Clive Barker has said he loved that. Like he wish he had thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Lovecraft had some great work and was a racist and uh, yeah i mean i don't know what else to say so yeah i think i think we said a, i think we said a lot yeah. so i think i think we're not going to have as much to say about cool air though so i think i mentioned to you on this podcast or maybe privately but i i think i mentioned that cool air was if not the first then one of the first short stories i read from from lovecraft you did mention that to me, yes, yes. Yeah. And, and so it's always been, it's always had a soft spot in my heart because of that, it, but it's it's short as well. It's only nine pages long. It's one of his, you know, right. macabre stories, basically. Um, yeah. A little bit of background, it was written in late February uh, 1926 and published in Tales of Magic and Mystery in March 1928. Um, the setting, 317 West 14th Street, is a, a real location that Lovecraft's friend owned, and to which Lovecraft had a, had access for about two months, which is kind of funny to think because if you wanted to own that location now, uh... oh my god, how much <laughs> how much would that be? Uh, a few million dollars? Yeah, because for... it's just a couple blocks away from the High Line, I believe now. So it's you know, oh my god, yeah, prime. Isn't that yeah back back then? It was probably nice back then too. I'm sure. But... But now it's like, oh, right, how am I going to afford that ever in a million years? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even afford to rent an apartment in that neighborhood now. But um, yeah, the, the ammonia cooling system, which seemed like kind of a fabrication of science fiction, is actually based on, um, has an autobiographical source mm-hmm. since uh, um, Lovecraft mentioned it about a, a theater in Providence that had one in a correspondence with a friend of his. Um, and a lot right. of people think the primary influence uh, or inspiration is uh, is Poe's The Facts in the Case of M. Voldemort, which, side note, George Romero did an adaptation of For Two Evil Eyes with Dario Argento, um, which I covered on I Do Movies Badly when I covered George Romero. Um, but actually, the, the primary inspiration seems to be uh, Arthur Mackin's The Novel of the White Powder, where, quote, a hapless student unwittingly takes a drug that reduces him to a dark and putrid mass seething with corruption and hideous roteness, neither liquid nor solid, but melting and changing before our eyes and bubbling with unctuous oily bubbles like boiling pitch. Delicious. And our favorite Lovecraft scholar S.T. Josie notes that uh, the story, much more than the mediocre, the horrid Red Hook, it's funny that he used, it to, that he used mediocre as the word to describe that one, Yes, <laughs> um, it is Lovecraft's most successful evocation of the horror to be found in the teeming clangor of America's only true megalopolis, and that's true. Is that um, it, New York City itself is kind of a setting and is kind of terrifying. In just like this guy in the short story is like, I'm a stranger here. I'm out of work, so I just took this yeah. place I could afford, and then weird shit basically started happening. Exactly. I mean, Cool Air is a little different. As he just got an apartment there, 
Yeah. A little change, you know. <laughs> like, what, what, but bit. that's the least of the worries, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 2006 is Cool Air. Uh, is, um, yes. uh, Cynthia Kiernan, I believe, is, is is the 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 screenwriter and is the producing partner of Albert Pion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely. The, the film is only 78 minutes long. And which, yet, it, which sounded great. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I think if you took out the opening and closing credits and any slow motion shot in this movie, oh, it would God. be probably closer to 60 minutes long. Like, it's... Yeah. This film is laborious to get through. Um, and yeah. I, I think it... It speaks to the challenges of now. Now, from beyond was only four pages, and yet Stuart Gordon stretched that into a pretty effective feature-length film. Yeah, definitely. But this film, this short story in this film, sort of does speak to the. There are challenges in taking something which is so small and stretching it out into a longer film that has, or a longer title that has uh, an arc and tension and a driving narrative. And the script fails so spectacularly at trying to do that. Um, but I want to start out, James, with uh, yeah. with some some things that I liked, and it's going to be very short. Okay. Um, I do think <laughs> the uh, the gravelly voice of the lead actor Morgan Weiser, like, kind of kind of sells some of the dialogue and like especially the expository descriptions. Like, it, it kind of had a an like LA a noir, noir vibe. Yeah, right. Like, it, yeah, it, it, it did. And I think that adapting, like setting the the location in L.A., having him do that voiceover, and the way that he is so sharp in identifying the people and the location, it kind of played into that noir vibe. And, and for the first ten yeah. fifty minutes, I was like, okay, was, maybe there's something here. I was digging it too. I was like, oh, what's Jim talking about? <laughs> and then those ten and fifteen minutes go by, and then I realized what you were talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh God! Um, I mean, I, I don't even. Yeah, what else? What else did? You, what else did you like? Yeah, I mean, so once again, the the challenges of or, or the the task of every screenwriter or or director who is adapting Lovecraft, you know, they they take like this little piece, but then I'll update this piece. So it's kind of fun that he updates it, like you know, instead of an out of work newspaper writer or journalist, like it's he's an out of work screenwriter. Okay, makes sense for L.A. Yeah. Um, and then you you set it in L.A. instead of New York City, which. Okay, fine. If you're gonna do that, that's fine. Fine. Present day, it's present day. Also, it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic elements are there. A guy moves into this house where there is a doctor in an upstairs room doing strange experiments and where ammonia is leaking. Um, and yet, everything else, or I shouldn't say everything else, but how Albert Pion executes everything else misses entirely. I mean. Everything is is such a drastic and bad misfire. And where do we begin? Um, do I want to start at, at, at nitpicking James, or should we just go straight to the rotten core of this movie? I'm, t- I'm, I'm trying to think where we should go with it, because maybe just go to the rotten core, and then like, and then I'll talk a little bit of Albert Pune and like mm. where I don't even know... This does not even feel like one of his films. Okay, all right. But that's a whole other thing. But I think the Rotten Core is the best way to kind of get right into it, you know? Okay. So I think, and now we've we've covered a lot of movies on this podcast in which you could tell there were sort of budget limitations, but the filmmakers were trying to do what they were trying to do with it. Cool Air is a movie which is so hampered by its lack of budget in the sense of one of the things which was so effective about the short story was the physical description of how it's like it was sort of this musty sort of broken down building and the machinery that the doctor has and is working on and yet if there was ever a short story that needed a production design for an adaptation it was this one because of like i remember reading this for the first time and i was thinking kind of like a steampunk sort of thing um yeah or like a big factory type setting, almost with yeah. like a, like a factory area or something like like yeah. And this is just a room. Yeah, like because it's because one of the things that I found so appealing about the story was this idea of this doctor who was doing scientific things which were way beyond like the limitations of the 1920s. So there's machinery that maybe the character doesn't really understand. What are these chemicals for? How does this machine work? And yet, what you have here is basically it seems like Pyun found a house. And just shot whatever was in the house. Like it's 
This location is bland, it's boring, it's just modern LA, and it goes kind of in my mind entirely against what made the short story so effective. Like the, I, I wrote a note here, direction mm. is largely just point and shoot, so the camera just shoots whatever is happening, and yeah. holy shit, did you not have money for a microphone? Because there's yeah. so much echoing and people in the distance, and the production value is so low that it's actively distracting it's it's bizarre because um albert pune was always a director that um always in indie filmmaker sensibility mm -hmm. and always always worked with what he had and from all the stuff that i would see of of his films you know from the 80s up until like the the early 2000s when he did his like urban like action films with like Snoop Dogg and Master P and stuff like that. He always had like a sense of like whim. Like you could tell he was having fun and trying to do something mm. with, with what limitation. And then even something like a bigger budget film like Cyborg was kind of taken away from him in the editing department. Mm. And he, he wanted a more depressing non because basically with something like Cyborg, Jean-Claude Van Damme, seems like a, a wimp in this movie because he's, you know what I mean? Like he's wandering around his wasteland, but like never wants to fight. But mm -hmm. if you watch, but if you watch his recut version, Albert Pune put out a few years ago, it's depressing because it's almost like the, you understand why he was so never wanted to fight. He was like that, that um, disgraced samurai who <laughs> would only fight when he had to, yeah, but yeah. you don't get, but you don't get, but cyber was still fun. And like this film I'll even like the 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 writer who wrote Radioactive Dreams, the cinema of Albert Pune, is uh, Justin DeClos. Um, he's from Canada. He has his own little like like film company, Gold Ninja Video, and he put out a lot of weird weird shit. But I'll even like I'm just gonna read just the ending of of his review, which was not a good review of this film. <laughs> so he's on the same page as us. Like okay. he doesn't. It's it's what I love about this book is like when the film's bad. He t he tells you it's not like okay. oh I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about every film like it's great sure so so was all of Pune's energy sucked out by the digital equipment <laughs> and that's the other thing this film is just like that that shitty looking digital filmmaking just, very very clearly like mini DV basically yeah definitely um was his golden age style inherently intertwined with his colleagues from the 90s or is Cool Air merely the work of an artist who wanted to try something radically different. And stumbled along the way. <laughs> I, I, he doesn't even know. And and is a guy that watched every film of his and and tried to look for the good. Mm -hmm. And and this film is like nothing good. Like he, throughout it, he talks about other adaptations like the Bernie Wrightson comic book in Erie of Cool Air. Mm -hmm. He talks about the Night Gallery episode that okay. deals with oh, this. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay. And he talks about briefly the Lovecraft anthology film Necronomicon, which the Japanese filmmaker uh, Shizuki Kaneko does an adaptation of Glarinet, but it's like gore filled and looks gross. Okay. Which is a good sign. I, I forgot about that one, but but this one it's like I I knew I was in trouble and that's and and you know, a little behind the curtain when I messaged you saying I think I said something like, what the fuck am I watching? And I, I think you laughed and I was like, one, they make the main character like a scumbag. Yeah. Oh my god. Like right from right you know like Okay, he's a he's a struggling screenwriter. That's cool. Fine. The L.A. twin. Okay, that can work. You can you can twist. But like you said, the house itself. It and uh, it to me it looked like there's another low budget filmmaker, uh, David Dakota, who does a lot of super low budget films like A Talking Cat and like crap like that. But but if you watch <laughs> his but if you watch his films, you start to see something similar, which is a lot of the same actors, mm -hmm. but also. The same fucking house <laughs> in every film in the last like 10 years because it's his house. So it almost feels like this is either a friend's house because there's nothing special about it. And, do, uh, you know, and then, and, you know, what, what was the line? Um, um, autistic hottie. To be to be clear, James. Uh, oh, so, okay, so, okay. so we're absolutely reflecting the masterful text of Cool yeah, Air. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. He says almost with like disappointment and disdain. An autistic hottie, and yeah, then yeah. and then damn autism, almost as though like, hey, I would tap this thing if it wasn't autistic, and like that is some creepy oh. fucking ableist bullshit that 
serves no purpose for this entire movie. Not at all, because like, and and okay, I I like the inclusion of like, okay, you have this autistic girl that doesn't realize what's going on. Mm-hmm. That could that could have worked really well. Like she's innocent, she doesn't. But what like ultimately, she's autistic, or is she? Or was she like experimented on, mm-hmm. and she's like part of her? Like I don't understand like, yeah. that that character at all. There, there seemed to be an element. And now, full disclosure, and I'm not even really ashamed about this. Many times during this movie, I was checking my phone, doing something else. So maybe I missed something, but it seems like the film was trying to set up as though like there was an arrangement between the woman who owned the house and the yes. doctor in the sense of like you can live here if you fix my daughter possibly and i think something like that right there and now there's something interesting there if that's what gets us into the story like oh why is this doctor here what's wrong with your daughter now i i'm there's two problems with this like if if you're going to like okay my daughter has a condition and then it's discovered later on like oh the doctor's been operating on your daughter okay horrifying kind of reveal could be cool but one you have an autistic character who is played by an actor who is not autistic, so that's not cool. And yeah. number two, he's a fucking creep. <laughs> right. He, like, he wants to, like, sleep with this girl. Like, oh, she's hot. Oh, man. But if she wasn't autistic, maybe, yeah. I, maybe it wouldn't be bad. Like, that's what I get from it. And even the mother, the you know, the mother character is just like, don't talk to my daughter. Get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. Which was which was a good sign. Like, okay, cool. But then that's forgotten. Mm-hmm. Now, once Which again, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. If the mother, like, if he was like, because he comes in as like an asshole, fine, because you have to have him go through some type of arc. So, if part of yeah. his arc is he starts warming up to uh, a, a character that he is like, oh, bad shit has happened to this person, and the mother misinterprets that affection, okay, oh, that's right. that that's that's a good source of conflict and tension there. But instead, damn autism, like, ugh. yeah, I. Uh, I I don't get it, and I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll mention one thing that I that I kind of liked as a little twist, mm-hmm. and I think it's something that like it's I, it almost feels like something that was like a knock at Lovecraft himself, mm-hmm. which was the reveal that the Doctor was a woman. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but and even the scumbag writer was like surprised that it's a, a female. <laughs> like it almost, yeah. it, you know, it, it would have been funny if he said a female's Doctor. <laughs> like, like it almost felt like that, and then because he has that random heart attack out of nowhere, right? Which is it's in the short story, but it doesn't. I, I know, but it, yeah, it doesn't make sense for a a young it, like twenty something to just like, yep, I had a heart attack. But but and, and that's the thing. I understand that's that's the you know the the plot device to get him into the room, you know, to have this doctor meet him and experiment on him. But it just it just comes out of nowhere, like. I, I, you know, we we haven't talked about the second film. We'll talk about that one. Actually, gives you a little reason why, and we'll 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 discuss that. And I actually like that better. Mm-hmm. It's a good little like, oh, okay, that makes sense. This one is like, I'm young. I'm, I'm oh, heart attack because because I got told to leave. <laughs> like it almost looked like he was faking it. For I'm like, wait, what's going on here? I'm like, is that? Oh no, he's he's in bed and he can't move now. There, there's just. Well, I, I'm not going to knock a guy like Albert Pion for being a low-budget filmmaker. I'm, I'm not even, to a certain extent, going to knock the Asylum people, because, like, listen, we're working with 150 bucks, so we have to make a movie. Fine. But there seems to be such a fundamental misunderstanding of how people work that I'm actually kind of surprised how brain-dead this script is. Yeah, it's um, so weird. Yeah, and and like and you you mentioned Charles and and, and the doctor and like it, it seems like um, Charles is given some type of arc, but his arc yeah. is entirely dependent on his connection with the doctor, and that right. makes no sense because their no. primary scene shared together is one long ex- expository where they basically just spell out the plot. They really do. Yeah, you're right. It was like, oh, by the way. Um, here's the plot of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Like, she explains them what she is, basically, there. Yeah, it's, hey, well, maybe your doctor did, maybe your doctor in your screenplay did these experiments and just, like, on and on. And, like, it, it was a figurative clock wipe where it's like, are we still fucking talking about this thing? Right, it's like, okay, I get it. She, 
she she she's lived for a hundred you know hundreds whatever amount of years. Okay, that's cool, but you can do more with that. Like, and, and that's and maybe it's because now, when I read the story, if I imagine this as like an adaptation, it's a, I don't know, Anthony Hopkins is in my head as the Doctor, and and I, maybe that says something about my my bias, not even yeah, I guess bias or or, or I'm imagining of course a, a male Doctor, but just this. No, I know, yeah. Older person that, like, has some gravity behind them, who has some charisma where they, you know, maybe he keeps going back every now and again and he starts learning a bit more about... Because we... I'm I'm, I'm getting so angry that I'm, I'm not speaking clearly, but basically <laughs> we're supposed to believe this guy had an intense connection and learned so much about this doctor that it changed his life in just this one scene... And right. you, you need, like, more slow reveal of who this Doctor... Maybe he catches a glimpse of the Doctor behind the door. Maybe he has just one terse conversation and they start opening up. But just, it's it's basically like, here it is, all at once, and then that's supposed to change our character? Yeah, then, like, you have that other um, resident in the house... Um, played by Norbert Weiser. Um, who, who I'm pretty sure is the lead actor's dad. Is it really? I oh, will... yeah, I think, I, oh my god, I think you're right. Which, yeah. Which is mind-blowing, but um, yeah, I didn't realize Weiser, Weiser, yeah. If it is, whatever. And, but his character is like, you know, you, you get a little, like, almost to that extent, you got the little reveals of who this doctor is. And like, everyone else was talking about this doctor, and okay, fine, fine. And then like, you could have kept that going on and then see a little glimpse, see a little thing, mm-hmm. maybe like um, see her in the cloak, whatever the case. There are ways to do it, but it's like you have this other guy talking and then his scene makes it's like you were you're, you got the, the treatment. My wife was supposed to get the treatment. Well, what are you talking about? Oh, I killed her. Um, and, then, and then he went and slashed his wrist and laid with her and died. I, you know me. I like shit. Mm-hmm. I really do. Like, I like crappy films. Like, But this one is not even crappy in a good way. It's just boring. And, like, oh, God, those high school artistic shots, like, the, the static, like, slow motion. Yeah. Fall, fall, you know, him getting the heart attack. It's like, you know, like, this. I'm like, like, what am I watching here? Like, and this, this does not feel like the same filmmaker that I thought was always like, oh, wow, he did some cool stuff and, like, did a lot with this little bit. This one, it seems like, I got a house and okay, we got the script. I guess we could do it, but ah, eh, no special effects or anything. Yeah, that's and it, it's weird because it has the feel of a guy cashing a paycheck, but he couldn't but, have gotten paid much at all for making this movie. Right. It wasn't like it's it's like a big budget movie. Oh, I I definitely got a million dollars for this film, and I just didn't give a shit. Mm. No, this is a guy that like was always indie filmmaker got whatever he could get he would try to make something from it like you know even the the captain america one which is a bigger budget film for him yeah was still super low mm-hmm. but he did what he could with it it's not a good film but it's like okay you you tried you tried to make at the time when when comic book movies were a joke unless it was even even superman was a joke at that time because of superman 4 yeah but but batman was in so captain america wasn't like the mentality was like, well, he's corny. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yep. ultimately, that's what the film feels like. It's a corny film. But this film, it's just like, it, it just felt like a guy that had never directed before. What happened? Did he forget how to direct during this? Like, the three days they shot this and just said, ah, let's edit it the best we can and put it out there. If you had told me this was directed by a high schooler, a first-year film student, I would 100% believe you because yeah. I am I don't know a lot about Albert Pion. I've I've seen Captain America. It was when I was a kid and I loved it as yeah. a kid. I haven't seen any of his other stuff, but just based on how many films he made, you have to assume with his experience, he would have brought something to this film to his direction and it's just there's nothing there. It's soulless. It's boring. It's uninteresting. It's it's so bad. It's like it's so bad that it's like it's it's obnoxiously bad. It's like everything they could have done wrong, they did wrong. Even down to minor details, such as when we first meet Deltoid, 
who is the other guy living in, in, Del- the, in Deltoid. The Deltoid. Deltoid is his name. Um, the voiceover tells us that he worked as an animator for Disney in the hay- in the fi- in the heydays of the fifties. Yeah. But here's the thing. Yeah. This film was released in 2006. The actor, yeah. Norbert Weiser, at the time was only 60. So how yeah. could he have been an animator in the heyday of the 50s? Right. Um, it, it, no, it makes no sense. Like, the only thing that would have made sense is if it's revealed that he's been having the serum, too. Yeah, that's a good one. But they didn't even get, like, no, no my wife my wife is supposed to, but I killed her. Oh, so you're a scumbag, too. Yeah. Like, like you killed your wife. <laughs> what? She's frozen right now, so she's good. She's like Ted Williams. And, uh, and, 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 and you know what? Maybe that's a joke. Walt Disney is frozen. And, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm giving too much credit to wait, what wait it too much be. credit. It, it may be now. Maybe also with the deltoid reveal of like it's his wife who is frozen. Like it's supposed to hint towards how much power this doctor did have over the residents of the house. Like, sure, I'll work oh. on your daughter. Sure, I'll raise your wife from the dead. But none of that is is ever fleshed out because we have one scene with the doctor basically. Right, and, and only like a flashback scene when the, the air conditioning was down yeah. once and her suffering. That's it. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. And it was, and now once again, we, we've seen how a short story like From Beyond, which is four pages because it was stretched into an effective feature film, but this film really made me question, you know, perhaps not all of his work is ripe for adaptation. Maybe there is some, like, I, I do think this right. film suffers from being a modern update, basically. Uh, no, and and funny enough, I would have agreed 100% with that, except that Arts, the second film we'll talk about, you know, I'm not saying it's great. No. But it somehow did it more effectively. And I think it's because like, it doesn't try to be a straight adaptation, whereas this yes. this one does. This one tries to be faithful, down to even like the, you know, the opening, the opening monologue. Uh, when we first meet him, like, uh, you know, there are those who say respond to cold uh, as others do to a bad odor. Exactly. That's from the short story, and that's also in the film. Like, I mean, he it pulls straight from the story. So you can tell what they were trying to do was be very faithful, and yet, hey, maybe you can't be very faithful to a nine-page short story, which is really just meant to be this visceral, aha, big scary reveal at the end, done. Well, yeah, like, yeah, like, no, you're right. Because, like, even um in the book, he talks about that where, you know... He basically says, "This sh- shouldn't be this long. Like, <laughs> like it's a nine-page story for a reason. Possibly, like there's nothing added to this that gave you the reason why it should be stretched out to seventy-eight minutes. And like, you know, the digital nature and all this other stuff. And it's like, like he even said, trying something new to like implement the hard-boiled Sunset Boulevard Boulevard-style narration along with New Age mysticism, mm-hmm. but it just it just doesn't work." And like, and I, 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 I'm, I want you to talk about the, uh, the one thing in this movie that I still don't get at all, which is the inclusion of those that certain animal. That's like what? Yeah, I have like every fucking like what? I have in the notes, and I'm not going to express it as I wrote it because I yes, wrote it yeah. all in caps and underlined. What the fuck is with the goats? I don't know because. It seems like, especially when he's having, like, a heart attack and he's on the stairs, we're, like, flashing back <laughs> to the goats, and it's... What, what do they have to do with anything? They Right. Nothing, like, you know, I didn't get anything good from this at all. Like, it's no. just anger, um, depression. Um, it's like those, when you watch those um, commercials for drugs, like, that to take for, like, depression. Oh, yeah. or, mm-hmm. But it's like, you get all the side effects. I only got side effects from this movie. I didn't get anything good. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I go so far as to say it. It might be an irredeemable picture. Like there's not. There's not a whole lot that's good in it. And then even our no. ending, we have oh, ending yeah. titles because of course we do. Of that uh, Charles apparently this story he be, he went on to become a, oh. a successful screenwriter. But oh. let's let's even leave aside the fact that I guess maybe they were trying to be meta with it. But yeah. The yeah. doctor, Doctor Schachner, dies in Charles's arms, and so we're once again meant to believe that there is some type of connection that that once again Charles's arc revolved around his connection with the doctor. But right. if he right. then 
writes this movie and becomes so successful, isn't he exploiting the Doctor's legacy or his relationship? So how it just it's n none of this makes well, any sense. Well, luckily he probably changed the name, <laughs> and, and nobody would believe this story. You know what I mean? But and here's my thing. Okay, so he leaves. He's driving off into the sunset, or whatever the hell. And like you know, and he's just driving off, and he's narrating about like the cold. But like you know, from what I gather, like he still, like he still has the stuff in it. You know, basically, I thought he needs to be cold forever. But now, like in his case, it's like, oh, whenever it's too cold, I get a chill mm -hmm. or something, or whatever. And then we get the reveal of the daughter having a weird face. Like, you know, she was scarred on one side of the face. And that's why I was confused. I'm like, we never saw that. Was that was her hair always covering that side of the face? Like, I didn't want to watch it again. That's why. I was no, like, I'm not I'm not watching this no, again. No, it's it's fine. And and so, you know, the the reveal in the short story is he's reading the note from the doctor who has basically kind of like melted or disintegrated. That's yeah. that's saying like, Yeah, I died all those years ago. And in a short story where like that's that's the big rug pull out reveal moment, like, cool, that's fine. Yeah, I get it. Awesome. Yeah. In a film where you have extensive conversation about prolonging death and that kind of stuff, the reveal, quote unquote, that the doctor had died 127 years ago, yeah, we got it, dude. They spelled out the entire story for us already. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise. It was like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, you know, and and then like you, you know, the whole thing you said about the the mother, you know, the woman that owned the house, like she was very helpful towards the you know, the doctor this whole time, except for at that point. Then it's like, eh, I guess she's going to die now. I guess the movie's about to be over, so the credits yeah, are about yeah. to roll. Yeah, let's wrap it up, yeah. And it, it's <laughs> it's one thing to have Chekhov's gun, you know, you introduce a gun in the beginning, you have to get back to it eventually. It's exactly. Another, it's another thing for a guy to be carrying around a gun for the entire movie and then to fire it off. Like, yeah, that didn't surprise us. We knew that was happening at some yeah. point. Yeah, you had the gun in your hand the whole time. Yeah. Like, like, I was, like, if you didn't fucking fire it off, then you're a piece of shit. Yeah. You, you, like, you know. You had a gun and you kept saying, I'm going to shoot you. So then when he does shoot you, how can you oh. possibly be surprised? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I really don't have much else to say about this. No. Film. Like, it really, no. really not, not, like, usually when we have a, like, a, a less than good film, but, you know, bad film, we even find, we, we sometimes even find the little bit of goodness in it, or maybe, maybe a performance, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe a special effect or something like, oh, the gore was good at least. Yeah. Oh, at least this was good. This is just lifeless like the corpses that are left behind. <laughs> it's lifeless like Deltoid's body with his wife that he killed. Mm -hmm. For some reason, maybe she was a Warner Brothers fan and not a Disney fan. <laughs> like, there's a twist. You know, but, I but, mean... Oh, so bad. Three ninety nine down the drain. Yeah, I mean, and considering we watched um, Beyond <laughs> Reanimator... Yeah. I, it's 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 saying something that this may be the worst film that we've covered on this podcast. I, I actually was like, you know, and being like a person that wasn't even the biggest fan of Beyond Reanimator myself, and I and I try to like crap. I was wishing I was watching that one again. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I wish I was seeing the the animatronic dick walk around like trying to get people. Yeah, or whatever the, yeah. And then have a fight with a mouse in silhouette. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. You know what? You know what's funny? That at least Brian 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 used that at least you could tell was trying to do something. Yeah. Even though it was bad, but mm -hmm. this one it's like just I don't know. And look, look, I'm 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 not gonna keep knocking Albert Pune like like it's it's come out like maybe a few years after this he 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 was really sick. Hmm. But I'm not sure when that started and like he actually was gonna retire you know, he said he was retiring from filmmaking. Okay. Maybe like twenty twelve, twenty three I forgot what it was. But a guy like him, what I love about him though is that even though he said, I'm going to retire, I'm tired, you know, I can't do it anymore. And then after he retired, he's made four films since. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know what I mean? He's still trying. He's still doing. So I give him that. It's just this is like this weird, at least from what I've watched of his films, this weird anomaly that there is nothing in it that feels like an Albert Pune film. Um, we are, of course, a biweekly podcast. But for this month, at least, we got a little bit of exception because... Yeah. Next week, we're actually going to be posting an episode we had posted about on the Facebook page. We had talked about it in, in past episodes. We had a we have our first interview and guest episode coming up where 
Um, two guys, Thomas Campbell and Gav Chucky Steele uh, yeah. from Deadbolt Films are from the UK. We we brought them on. We talked to them about uh, their short film Beyond, which is a From Beyond adaptation. We talked to them about filmmaking, about the influences of Lovecraft. It's a very fun conversation, so we will be posting that next week. James enjoyed it. I'm sure I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. This is a lot of fun. Um, so we'll be we'll be doing that. We'll be doing that next week. Um, it's a not a long episode, maybe about a, an hour, a little bit less than that. But it was a fun conversation. We covered um, basically everything, including um, I guess uh, uh, Thomas at one point also thought of getting into funeral directing or or the mortuary uh, services. Yeah, that was awesome. Like 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 what that's what I love about conversation. Like it's not just a normal interview. It's a conversation with two like minded guys mm-hmm. that ultimately was like just as this friendly conversation that just so happened like let's let's learn where you where you come from and like what do you like about lovecraft what do you like about film what do you like about horror what do you what did you what else do you like in lovecraft's like you know like comic books and games and stuff and you know yeah it's a fun conversation and i'm grateful that they didn't waste their money to watch cool air (laughs) yeah they were we initially invited them on to talk about (laughs) either one or both of these and I'd say thankfully for them, neither of them were available for streaming in the UK. So thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, oh man. Yeah. So um, of course, always easy to get in touch with us. Moviesofmadness at gmail.com if you want to email us. Uh, I am Nolan Fixes Teeth on Twitter. James is Fistful of Media. Castofcthulhu.podbean.com is where you can catch up on our back episodes and just follow whatever we're doing. So yeah, once again next week, interview with Thomas Campbell and Gav Chucky Steele. The week after that, we'll be talking about Chill, another Cool Air adaptation from 2007. But in the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with Dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia.